How's everybody doing? Glad you are here with us today. If you're new to us, my name is David Hurtado. Oh, look. Oh, it was on the screen for a second, and then it went off. I was all proud of that. Um, and uh, I'm lead pastor here, so glad you're with us. And uh, I'm super excited about this month. Uh, man, we're hitting the ground running this month, and uh, you just heard from Pastor Jim. I mean, I, I got to hang out with this guy for like three times, and each time I go, man, I go to his church. I just love the way he talks, and he's so passionate. You're not allowed to leave our church and go to their church. Uh, it, that's evil. And so... <laughs> Love you, Jim. Anyway, next week is the week, so we've been saying don't bring any diapers early because we don't want to have to put them all in you know, different closets around here. Next week's the week. You saw the pod outside when you came into church this week. We want to fill that thing up. And so uh, get diapers, get boxes of diapers. Any size will do. It doesn't matter. They have every, every kid's size there. Uh, so any size will do. Wipes. You're a young adult. I don't have any money. Go buy wipes. Be involved with us. Bring it next week. Drop it off by the pod next week, and we'll figure out how to get it uh, loaded in there. Uh, which is another thing, if you are here next week, you want to come a little early or leave a little late, we need help filling the pod. So uh, if you're good at packing, you know how, you know, we need no air spots in there so we can pack everything in there real good. If that's you and that's like, that's my realm, I'm good at that, come early, leave a little late, help us uh, pack the pod up with, uh, with diapers and wipes. You can see Kelly, our worship pastor, uh, if, if that's you, and he would love to, uh, to, uh, to, to bring you on board with him, because if not, he'll be doing it by himself. <laughs> so anyway, bring diapers and wipes next week, and then also, um, we need, and this is probably our fault, we've gotten good signups on every, all, all five of the initiative, uh, um, um, you know, different ways you can be involved, we've gotten good signups. Uh, one that needs help right now is the movie night. And so next week is the movie night. We're going, I'll be there myself. We're going to put on a big movie screen, jump houses and, you know, a, a barbecue and hang out with the families right on their premises. Perfect spot for it. Uh, we'll do just like we did here. Um, we did a thing where we said, sign up online or sign up on a clipboard. And we made that confusing. That's partially my fault. I'll take the blame for that. But I, we need people on that one. And so if you're available next Sunday, uh, you know, after church in the evening, I forget what time it is, um, and, and you want to be a part of that, we need 50 volunteers. We need set up and take down. We need, we need jump, jump, uh, jump house people who will watch the jump houses, uh, people who will cook. Go to the tent today. Uh, Bud and Jim will be out there. You can sign up for that today. We just need to make sure that we do that well and uh, have enough representation from us over there. We don't want the whole church to come because it's too small of a premises, but we do need about 50 people. So if that's you, uh, hit the tents and, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, make it. It's going to be an awesome, I mean, I, I get more excited about that than everything in the world except for preaching. I, mean, I love preaching. I love the Bible. That stuff just lights me up. The video of the girls, just, you know, it's just, it's just God. It's so clearly a God thing. And so I'm so for it. Can you tell I'm for it? I'm for it. All right. So um, our story today starts in one summer day in 1990. Did you know 1990 is 28 years ago? That's crazy. I was 12 years old. I had a new bike, just got it from Kmart. Now, that's how I rolled. I never had the uh, like premier name brand bike. I always got the knockoff from Kmart. That's just how my family was able to do it. Anybody relate to that? Okay, that's my story. So, so, so you get the knockoff from whatever it is. If the shoe, it's a knockoff shoe from Kmart. If it's a bike, it's a knockoff bike from Kmart. It was just the what we were, but it was a beautiful, painted, beautiful bike, and I got it. And what that meant was that since uh, it was from Kmart, the structural integrity of the bike might not be as structurally sound as a name brand bike. So, so maybe, maybe it wasn't welded quite as well. Maybe, and this is what usually happened, on a name brand bike, you would get thicker 
thicker tires and the tread would be higher and, and, and you know, it would just be thicker and the, maybe the tires would last longer. Maybe they would hug the ground better kind of a thing, right? And, and the Kmart bike would have thinner tires and not, not as high of a, as a tread. They're saving money where they can so they can sell the bike for cheaper, right? That's why Kmart's not around anymore. Actually, that's because of Walmart. Anyway. I and I digress. And so I get this bike, and I don't care that it's on name brand bike. I'm going to ride my bike like it's a dirt bike. And so I remember there's this little sloped hill. It was, it's now a parking lot with, a, with a, you know, like a service station on it, whatever. But at that time, it was like a, a, a little dirt road that had like a slope to it. And I'm riding my bike and going zigzagging through this, right? And each time you zig and zag, almost like you're skiing, you know what I mean? Zigzag. Each time you're zigzagging, you're getting more momentum as you're moving forward. And the more momentum I get, the more pressure it puts on those tires with low tread and very thin to hug the road, right? To, you know, and so each time I'm turning and I'm doing this slashing thing, I'm, I'm going, building, I'm just a lot of fun. But at some point, my tire is not going to be able to hug the ground anymore. And sure enough, that happens and I fly. And I'm in the air, flying in the air, and I crash and hit the ground as hard as you can imagine. And I remember right away having no breath inside of me, like I got gut punched. Like, uh, you ever heard that phrase, uh, getting the wind kicked out of you? You hear that football a lot? That, that's a real thing, and it happened to me. Literally, it felt like the air that was in my lungs is gone. Not only does it feel like the air in your lungs is gone, but also, like you can't breathe. So I'm sitting there, and I'm going, I, I can get no air in my lungs. And I'm like, I'm like starting to do this compression thing on my abdomen and trying to work, work, you know. So I, I'm, I'm doing the inhale, in, the inhale, exhale muscle procedure that I usually do where I get air, but I'm not able to get air into my lungs. Has anybody experienced that before? It's very, very scary. It probably lasted for about 10 seconds, but it felt like five hours. And I begin to deliberate within myself. You know how you do this, where you're, you're in a situation where you're thinking, you know, 10 million words a second, you know, type of thing. And in that process, even though it was only probably five to 10 seconds, so many things go through your mind. And the one thing that came through my mind is, if I can't get myself to breathe again, I'm going to die right here in this, in this dirt field. I mean, that's, oh my gosh, and the people say, raise your, put your feet in the air. I'm putting my feet in the air, you know, I'm trying to, whatever, you know, how can I get air back into my lungs? Doing the chest compression, come on, work, 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 work. But lo and behold, about five or 10 seconds later, I did the inhale, exhale thing, and air came back in my lungs. And then I exhaled. And you know what I realized? I was okay. By the grace of God, I was okay. I had flown off my bike, I lost my wind, got gut punched, rolled over for about five or 10 seconds, felt like I was dying in a panic, oh my gosh. And you know what happened? About five or 10 seconds later, I was able to breathe in. And I realized that by the grace of God, I was okay. Why do I share that today? Why do I share that story with you today? Because I'm gonna be 100% honest with you. Somebody in the room today will feel like this message is a gut punch. Some of you in the room today, maybe all of us to a certain extent will feel like, oh my gosh, I just lost, I got the wind kicked out of me in this message. I got gut punched, the wind's been kicked out of me, and the temptation is to go into a panic. Oh my gosh, what does this mean? Just remember this, in about five or 10 seconds or so, you might roll over, breathe in, and breathe out, and realize what? You know what? By the grace of God, I'm still here. By the grace of God, I'm alive. And nobody's entered the room and nobody's entered the building without the grace of God coming upon your life. 
I don't care what your past has been. I don't, how, I don't care how good you think you've been. You do not get favor with God without his grace and his mercy on your life. And so we need to remember that as we go through these things and we, and we deal with these things. Sometimes it can be difficult to deal with. Don't panic. Remember, you're going to roll over and you're going to realize by the grace of God, you're still here. You see, in the name of not wanting to offend anyone, the church oftentimes over history has gone silent on issues that are very important to God. Very important to God. Well, we've gone silent. Why would you go silent? Well, obviously, if somebody in the room has participated in the activity that we're going to be talking about that God doesn't like, then they're going to feel offended, and so we don't talk about it. Don't, we don't want them to have their feelings hurt. We don't want them to feel offended. We don't want them to feel like we're targeting them. And so we go silent on it. And what has happened over time is our kids now do not know what is moral or immoral. In fact, most of our kids don't even know the meaning of morality. What does it mean to be moral and immoral? What is biblically correct and biblically incorrect? What is right in the eyes of God versus what is not right in the eyes of God? And they don't know because we've gone silent on these issues. Let me give you an example. Like when the Bible talks about what God feels about divorce. Well, obviously, that's one that we should skip. Let's not talk about that one. Let's, let's steer clear of that topic. Too many people in our society, quoting all the stats, 60%, 50-60% in the world have gotten divorced. That number is now crypt in the church. Even in the church, we emulate and, and see that same statistic in the church. Well, obviously, that means there's people in the room who have participated in that or been a part of that or been affected by that, and we should steer clear of that topic because we don't want to hurt their feelings. The trouble with that is when you position yourself as a church that teaches through the Bible verse by verse, word by word, and then you get to Mark chapter 10 where Jesus seems to talk about it and have some great deal of opinion on it. Well, now what do we do? Let's skip to chapter 11. Just take chapter 10, rip it out of your Bible. We're not going to do that one. We're going to do chapter 11 instead. Or do you go through it? Do you go through it? When I say things like, we're going to take the word of God and we're going to put it up high and we're going to, we're going to listen to it, we're going to, we're going to preach it, we're going to put ourselves underneath it, and it's going to be the standard for our life. Well, that feels great at times, but not when you're talking about divorce. Take that thing and put it down here. And you know what else is an issue with this? Our LGBTQ friends, affirming friends, would say, you guys, say you, 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 you lift up morality and you, and you defend God of morality and you'll, you'll browbeat us on our sin, but you never deal with divorce. Do you know that's a common If you really defend morality, how come you don't talk about divorce in your church? You're not being consistent. And you know what? That can't be the case. We have to be consistent. We have to be consistent. And so, if you're in the room and you have been a part of that, you've been, I've been, I, I've been affected by divorce. My parents are divorced. 60% of kids, they say, has been affected in some way, shape, or form by divorce. I've done it. I'm, I'm thinking about doing whatever, wherever you're at. Just remember this. Don't panic. Because you're going to roll over. In about 10 seconds, you're going to breathe again. And you're going to realize that it's only by the grace of God that I'm here anyway. All right? Just because God hates divorce doesn't mean that he hates you. But it's true that he hates divorce. And we need to look at it. And so I need to preach this preventative medication to everybody in the room, especially so that the next generation says, I know what it is, and I know that I need to steer clear of it. 
And so we're going to do that today. This morning we're going to look at how God feels about the topic of divorce. How does he feel about the flippancy of the activity? And what does it show about our hearts when we, when we dive into that? Is the problem of divorce new to our present day and culture? Or has God been consistent in how he's approached it over all cultures and all times? And when we participate in the activity of divorce, what does it reveal about our heart and receptivity to God? And so the big questions on the screen today is, how does God feel about divorce? What are God's feelings on divorce? And the first thing we're going to see is that oftentimes it stems from a hard-heartedness. Oftentimes it stems from a hard-heartedness. We're going to see that. Not all the time. There are some exceptions to that, and we'll look at that later on today too. But oftentimes it stems from hard-heartedness. Let's read together in uh, Mark chapter 10. Verse 1 says this, Then or Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea, across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him. Okay, so now crowds are coming. He's done what he's always done. As his custom, he taught them. Some of the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders that we've seen throughout the book of Mark as we've been teaching through it, came and they tested him asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, interestingly enough, they tested him. They weren't looking for the right answer. They weren't looking for, please help us understand this. They were trying to pigeon him in a corner and make sure that whatever he said would get him in trouble. And we'll look at that in a little while as well. Then Jesus responded, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. It was because of your what? It because your hearts were hardened or hard that, jo- that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But in the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. And the two will become what? One flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. So a second repetition of that to show the emphaticness of that. So that they are no longer two, but One flesh, okay, good. So therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You hear that all the time at weddings, right? Verse 10, and when they uh, were in the house again, the disciples now came to Jesus and were asking him about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, which by the way, would be an unbelievable elevation of her as a woman. It's not just about how if you take another woman's wife that you've committed adultery against him for taking his wife. No, when you uh, leave your wife in divorce, you committed adultery against her. He's actually uh, bringing in a new ethic of the day that they wouldn't have understood before that. I'm going to elevate women and say, when you leave her, you've divorced her. You've sinned against her. You've, You've caused her to commit adultery, and you're committing adultery yourself. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery as well. And again, elevating the woman to have the right to, to, uh, to uh, acknowledging that even she could leave and divorce in the relationship, but it's an elevation of her as well. So what are God's feelings on divorce? Number one, it often stems from a hard-heartedness. All right, so here's the whole thing. So they, uh, they, they come to Jesus, we're going to pigeonhole him, in a, put him in the corner, and we're going to make it so whatever he answers, he's going to be wrong. Because uh, there's Two schools of thought of the day there. There's the conservative approach to divorce. There's the liberal approach to divorce, not unlike today. And so there was part of his crowd that would say, you can get divorced for any reason at all. There's part of his crowd that said, no, you can only get divorced if there's marital infidelity. And so when Jesus states what he's going to say is is the, the religious ethic, the moral ethic, God's standard, when he says one of those, he's going to make a, the other side upset. So there's going to be this group of people that are following him. We don't like all these people following him. Let's make him divide the group is the idea. And so he's going to state, 
his claim, and then half of his group's gonna leave. Perfect, we got him. Not only that, but he's in the region of Perea, and this is the same region that Herod Antipas is the governor over. Now, Herod Antipas, you might not remember, we talked about this in June, but in, in, in the book of Mark, Herod Antipas uh, was called on the carpet by one John the Baptist. Why? Because he married his uh, like second niece or something like that. She divorced her husband so that she could be connected with him. And so in that, uh, in that relationship, John the Baptist says that's immoral. For saying that, his head was cut off. And so now Jesus is back in that same region and... All of a sudden, the, the Pharisees are going, maybe we can get him to say something where Herod Antipas will off him as well. Maybe we can get him to say something so crazy that, that this problem will get rid of itself for us. We can get rid of this Jesus figure. And so they literally put him in a situation where we corner you so where you, whatever you say, you're going to get in trouble. Now, Jesus says, oh, that's interesting that you'd ask me that, and he asked the question back. I love, always love Jesus' strategy. Uh, he says, what did Moses give you? Kind of sets them up. And they go, oh, well, Moses says we can get divorced. And I don't have enough time to take you to Deuteronomy. I'll have you write it down. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Maybe there'll be a question in your growth group so you can look back at it um, this week. But uh, De Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, where Moses seems to give some direction on how one goes about divorcing his wife. And so the idea was, well, Moses let us have divorce. So since Moses let us have divorce, it's not a problem at all. And then there's this big misunderstanding as to why Moses would do that. In fact, he said, verse 5, it was because of your hearts, because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. It was your hard-heartedness. The word for hard-heartedness there is the same word for obstinacy. The same word for stubbornness. Because of your stubbornness, your obstinacy to God and his will and his desire for your life, that's why you've gone there. That's what he's saying. That's why Moses had to add these additional laws that didn't advocate for or authorize divorce, but they managed the fallout that came after divorce. So let me, let me break it down like this. So um, in, in, in the Old Testament days, there wasn't the, the separation between church and state. Okay, the church was the state. Here today, we have this separation between church and state. So if you get divorced, you have to go through the laws of the land to get through that whole process, right? Well, Moses was the laws of the land. And so you have, because of your hard-heartedness, you care not what God wants you to do. You're divorcing your wives anyway. I'm going to have to put some regulation in there to make sure that she's not just on the streets, that she's not just there, and people assume that maybe she committed adultery, because that would be the one thing, oh, she committed adultery. We should kill her in the Old Testament as a, a sin punishable by death. And so, no, I'm going to make you sit down. You can look at Deuteronomy 24 when you go back. I'm going to make you sit down and write her a certificate of divorce. There's going to be witnesses there, and you're going to declare that she didn't commit adultery. And you're also in that document going to declare what you're going to do financially, how we're going to divide up the estate now because you're doing this. That wasn't given to you because I wanted you to get divorced. That was given to you because you're hard-heartedness. You're doing it anyway. I've got to manage the fallout of it. And the biggest thing in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, that he's trying to mitigate against is this. You do realize that when you sign on the dotted line and you go divorce, you're not allowed to go back. Meaning, you can't go, I divorce you, and then she marries, I, she's free to marry another man. She marries another man and go, wait, I want you back. There's not going to be any uh, baby mama drama back and forthness, is what he's saying. 
And so what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to make sure that I regulate the occurrence because you're doing it anyway. Not that I'm saying that you should do it or it's okay to do it. That's what's going on in Deuteronomy 24. He's not authorizing divorce. He's regulating the fallout. And so because of Deuteronomy 24 and what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24, there had become two schools of thought. There was a school of Shemel, the Rabbi Shemel, or Shemai, I should say, and then there was a school of uh, uh, Rabbi Hem, uh, Hillel. Uh, the school of Rabbi Shemai was very conservative. The only reason you can divorce your spouse would be if there's marital infidelity. The school of, school of Rabbi Hamel uh, would be, you can divorce for any reason you want to. If she brought you some cold soup for dinner, divorce her. That's literally how flippant it could be and how flippant it had become in the first century. And it's not unlike the flippancy that we see divorce today. Very, very parallel together. And so you have this conservative circle that says, no, you can't. You have this flippant uh, liberal circle that says, yes, you can. And they would say, of course we can because Moses said we could write her a certificate of divorce. The reason he made you do that is because you're hard-hearted and you want to make sure that she was taken care of and the family was taken care of after you were done with your hard-hearted action is what he's saying. So we're going to learn to deal with the fallout of it. And that's what he does. And then in verse uh, 6, we see God's true heart on it. He says, you know, you didn't have to just go back to Moses. You could have gone back further than Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy, you could have gone back to God in creation to get your answer. You didn't need to go to Moses himself. Let's look at that. Verse 6. At the beginning of, the creation, of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they are one. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And then he makes his feelings even more clear. And when they were in the house again, the disciples asked him about this. He said to them, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. I'll be very clear about what that means. I'll tell you how I feel about it. And any woman who divorces her husband and, and marries again commits adultery. So there's something that happens in the marriage, marriage unit where you become one entity. And that oneness, here there was two individuals, they come together, they become one flesh. In fact, let me, let me just go here with this. God himself is one God. And yet we know him to be three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All right? So in the Godhead, we have singularity and plurality. They're both singular and plural. And what I want to do is I want to show you what that's like when I bring you two together and you get married. So that you have your individualness and your singularity, but you come together and you have the pluralness as well. You will be the very embodiment of God in your marriage. And just as God's union with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is eternal, so should your union be forever on this earth. That's what's going on. You become one together, one flesh. It is to be the closest relationship you have on earth. You are to guard that relationship. It'd be as if this. You don't see today too often a mother saying, I'm going to divorce my child. I mean, even as a father, I think to myself, what if my son ever did something where he had to go to jail? Well, he'd still be my son. I would still go visit him in jail and love him, but he would be in jail. But that wouldn't change the fact that he's my son. I wouldn't divorce him. 
And yet, here's this one flesh relationship supposed to be closer than that, and we see it get broken apart all the time. And this is what he's talking about. This is a one flesh ethic is the established standard of the scriptures. A heterosexual, monogamous, sexual, one flesh ethic within the confines of marriage. That's God's established standard. And then he takes it one step further because he takes credit for bringing the man and the woman together in marriage. So much that he would say, what God has brought together, let no man separate. This is to be such a close, close relationship, closer than any relationship on the earth, that, would, that could only be analogous to God himself and his relationship in the Godhead. It's never to be separated. In fact, if you do separate against it, he goes on in, in verses 10 to 12 to say, then that is adultery. That is adultery. And so the question always is, well, if it's adultery, is it a sin? Well, yes, of course it's a sin. Well, if it's a sin, is there grace to cover that sin? What's the answer to that? Yes. There's always grace to cover the sin. As long as there's a true, repentant heart, there's always grace to sin. We just sing songs about it. All right? That's, what, that's, what, that's, why, that's why we raise our hands, because in everything that I've done over here that is, that, that is the opposite of you, you've covered it with the blood of Jesus. That's our gospel. We believe that. All right? And so, yes, there's grace for it. Nobody's kicking you while you're down. At the same time, we need to acknowledge God's standard. That God's standard is still there. And that this should not be such a flippant thing. I mean, literally, there was a school out there that said, if your wife brings you a burnt meal, you could, you could divorce her. That's how flippant it got back there. And the sad thing is it's not too far off from what we see today. This is just a flippant activity. I have an out clause. Whenever I don't feel it anymore, when I don't feel the love anymore from you, or I don't feel love towards you, the most humane thing I could do is to set you free so you can find somebody who would love you. That is the opposite of what God tells us to do. No, you do the action of love until the feelings come back. And you do the actions over and over and over again, and guess what? The feelings will come back. Because it always feels right to do what God's called you to do. And so you trust. Man, we just sing a song. Even though I'm heavy, I'll still worship you. Great song for that predicament. Now, I want to be fair because there are uh, a couple out clauses in the Bible. I don't want people leaving uh, not hearing these. And so one of these is on the screen, Matthew 5, 31 to 32, says this, for this reason, same, same idea that we've heard already, for this reason a, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Oh, sorry. That's the wrong one. That's later. Uh, here we go. Uh, 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 Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Uh, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for what? This is Jesus talking. Marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus himself says there's something about marital unfaithfulness when you've broken trust on such, a, on such a deep level that I'm acknowledging that it may be irreversible, the effects of that. It may be that you cannot trust again. And it may be that when that happens, there is permissible, a divorce is permissible there. doesn't mean you have to do that. I want to make that so clear, abundantly clear. 
That just because my spouse is uh, in a weak moment made a mistake, that, oh, well, that means I divorce automatically. No, 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 no. To me, the most beautiful and the epitome of the gospel and the God-heartedness to say, I can forgive you of that, that, that gross sin can be more Christ-like than anything else on the earth. And I've seen several marriages say, you know, we made that mistake, and you know what? We're going to work through it. And they would say, we have a better marriage today because of that. And in a weird way, we're glad it happened because we wouldn't be where we're at today without that. Not that we like sin or glorify sin or praise God for sin, but I'm just telling you I'm so excited about my marriage today, and we wouldn't have worked on our marriage unless that, that occurrence happened. And that's the true story. I've read about it. I've heard about it. I've canceled it. So just because it happens doesn't mean you have to leave. But there is an acknowledgment from Jesus himself that says if the trust cannot be rebuilt, that is a place where you can separate. We also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15, the context there is uh, somebody who's come to know Jesus Christ. They were married prior to knowing Jesus. They come to know Jesus Christ, and their spouse says, I will have none of it. If you want Christ, I'm going to leave you. And Paul says, you can let them leave in that situation. If he or she wants to abandon the marriage because of your faith in Jesus Christ, they're allowed to leave, leave and you're allowed to remarry. All right? So there are some situations in the Scripture where even the Scripture acknowledges there's some occurrences where that can happen. I would add, and I would just say, uh, what about situations of physical abuse and sexual abuse? Uh, do I stay with my husband when he's molesting my kid? No. I don't have a verse for it, but I'm just telling you, I'm not going to tell anybody to stay in that situation. I would counsel separation and pray like crazy that God would do a miracle. But you do not allow innocence to continue to be abused. And so there are some situations like that where you have to deal with that are hard to deal with. But that is not what we see in the majority of divorces today. That's the minority of occurrences. And obviously the tension even in the scripture of our day is, is, is the flippancy of the activity. You guys know what no-fault divorce is? I did some research on this this week. Um, no-fault divorce uh, is where we get the idea of irreconcilable differences. You've heard that before, right? Well, why do you divorce? Well, irreconcilable differences. No-fault divorce was the, uh, the, the, the thing that allowed for irreconcilable differences. So let me just tell you this. In the year 2020, uh, we will mark 50 years of no-fault divorce uh, when no-fault divorce came on the scene, uh, the legislative scene in California by one governor, Ronald Reagan. Um, the, California was the first uh, state to adopt this, so this idea of no-fault divorce. Currently, every state in the United States has some kind of, some kind of version of no-fault divorce except for New York. Uh, New York apparently wants to know if there's fault, I want, we want to be able to prosecute against the fault, and so they have not done that. They have other things. But uh, every state now has a no-fault divorce clause. That basically, the idea is either party can legally request a divorce without claiming any kind of fault or breach a contract from the other party. You can say irreconcilable differences, and you can part ways. Before you make it sound horrible and, and think this is horrible that every can't, I just tell you this, it did one good thing in the sense that people stopped perjuring themselves to get out of their divorces. Because their hearts were so hard, I'm willing to lie about my spouse and what they have done or not done so I can get out of this divorce. And so at least it stopped that. But in the process, it led to the demise of a God-glorifying entity. The activity of divorce became rather flippant, and it's not unlike what we saw in the Old Testament when we were in Malachi. We saw Malachi chapter 2. We were dealing with that. And in the New Testament, Jesus is talking about, and it's not unlike the hard-heartedness that we can see today. And my heart gets so hard, 
I don't care what God says. I don't want to listen. I'm going to do things the way I want to do them. Not only that, but according to the scriptures, also comes a lack of receptivity to God. What are God's feelings on divorce? Number one, it often stems from a hard-heartedness. And number two, it often stems from a lack of receptivity to God. Let's read verses 13 through 16. People are, were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, uh, little, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not what? Receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put his arms around them and he blessed them. What is going on here? He gives them a living illustration right there. Isn't it amazing how kids will so, so if God, if they, they hear that God wants me to do it, they do it right away. Whatever he wants, I'll do it. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a range from like three years old to eight years old. It's like, I will do whatever God wants me to do. Just tell me what God wants and I'll do it. I don't question it. I just jump on it and do it. And what he's saying is, isn't it interesting that when you were a child, you had that heart and now you've grown up as an adult and you become skeptical about the things of God. That, that we have to learn skeptical, the, the whole heart of skepticalness, that's a learned thing. The children aren't like that. They just go, you want it? Yes, I want it. I want what you want for me, and they just act on it. And he's saying to them, where is that heart? Where is that heart, especially as it relates to divorce? Where is that heart? Where is it? Where did it go? That heart that just says, if he says it, I'm gonna do it. Because I love him, and I trust that his ways are higher than mine. Now, I wanna just go quickly to the big why. Why does God care? This is so important. Why does God care what I do? And let's say I do it in a responsible manner. I go, I, I'm fair, we divide up the estate, and she goes her way, I go my way, and I was fair about it. Why does God care so much if, if we just decide that there was a necessary ending here? And the answer to that question, I believe, is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. It'll be on the screen for you. It says this, for this reason, we've seen this before, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. We just saw that in, in, in Mark. Uh, you could see that in Matthew. You can see it all the way in Genesis. It's a quote from Genesis. And this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So this is, I don't have time to develop it, but I promise you we're going to go back to this passage in Ephesians chapter 5 in our next series. We're going to do a series on um, uh, uh, sexuality, uh, identity, relationships. I think we're going to call it creative differences or something like that. It's going to be like May 2019, but we're going to get there. We're already started planning it. And, and, uh, and we're going to deal with uh, Ephesians chapter 5 in depth, okay? But right now, I'm just going to have to give you the quick version of it, and that is this. You have in Ephesians chapter 5 this, um, this ordering of a relationship between man and woman in marriage. Here's how a husband is to respond to his wife. Here's how a wife is to respond to, his husband, to her husband. All right, this is the ordering of the relationship. If you do this, your marriage will go well. And so we're gonna deal with that during that series, okay? But in that, he was saying the husband is to represent Christ and his love for his bride, which is the church. And so the wife represents the bride of Christ, the 